0: Working for Ag and Development has amazing global, national, professional and very personal impacts. And you don't necessarily have to have an ag background to find yourself working in a field in a developing country, helping farmers to better feed their families and earn an income from their very small plots of land.
1: For the young people you're going to meet in this series, passion, resilience and ingenuity made that a reality. Join us as we meet the next gen with their boots on the ground in ag for development. Welcome to the Crawford Fund podcast series by Generation Ag.
0: Welcome to this episode of the Crawford Fun podcast series by Generation Ag. It is Kayleigh here as your host for this episode, and I have just got off the recording with our today's guests, and I am blown away. Every episode of this Crawford Fun series that we get to do, I, I am reminded of number one, how privileged a life I've lived here in Australia, but number two, I guess, how small our, our worldview can be. And I love that through this podcast series, we are able to just explore the world of ag for development and what it looks like to work in food production all over the world and all the different ways that you can do that. This is the third episode in the Crawford Fund podcast series. So you, if you have just landed here, you better go back and listen to the first two as well. Every episode, we are blown away by the incredible work that our guests are doing. And today's guest is absolutely no exception to that. Zoe Jones started her journalism career at the ABC's Triple J in Melbourne. Little did she know that her career path would lead her to villages in Darfur, the desert border crossing between Egypt and Sudan, Nepal after the 2015 earthquake, Rome and many places in between. These days, Zoe works in communications for the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. You'll hear her refer to it in this episode as the FAO. The FAO works in many countries around the world to end poverty, eradicate hunger and malnutrition, and increase sustainable agricultural production, leaving no one behind. I know you will get so much out of this episode today, so I'm not going to stand in your way any longer. Here's the interview.
1: The Crawford Fund is a charity that highlights the benefits of research for agriculture and development to Australia and developing countries. This involves Australia training in-country scientists and farmers to improve food and nutrition security. This supports young Australians in their careers, studies and volunteering in Ag for Development.
0: We're excited to be working with the Crawford Fund on this podcast series because they celebrate and promote the study, careers and volunteering in international agriculture provided to Australians with personal and professional benefits that have a real impact in the country where the work is being carried out. Initiatives of the Crawford Fund provide skills and knowledge of real benefit to Australian agriculture.
1: And their work is a broad range of pathways to career opportunities, both with international agriculture but not limited to agriculture, which is exciting. So it includes science, social science, finance, communications, law, environmental science, health and nutrition, economics and business. So it's a mouthful of stuff. It's really exciting and we can't wait to work more with the Crawford Fund and we're so happy that. ARR supporter of this podcast.
0: We can't wait for you to meet the amazing guests in this podcast series, so here we go. Well, Zoe Jones, welcome to the Crawford Fun podcast series by Generation Ag. Take a moment to introduce yourself.
2: Hi Kayla. It's great to be here. Uh, Yeah, so I'm Zoe Jones. I work for the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. I manage communications in Africa. Uh, I've been with the UN for coming up to 10 years now. That time has flown. I've been working for a couple of different organizations in uh, different places around the world. And before that, I was a journalist working in Australia.
0: Wow. It sounds like you've been all over the place. Before we get into, I guess, your career journey, I wonder if we could start at the beginning. What was your childhood like?
2: Oh, wow. That's going right back.
0: <laughs> um,
2: I was born in Adelaide. I grew up in Adelaide. I went to school there. Um, and then when I finished school, I was really keen Um, to get out of Adelaide and see the rest of the world. So I transferred by uni to Melbourne Uni. So I studied there. I did a a Bachelor of Arts at Melbourne and, you know, it was the 90s and I just really also learned a lot about life and then realised that I wanted to be a journalist. So I transferred to RMIT and did a postgrad one year in journalism and it was a really fantastic course because it was just one year and it was people who were really motivated. And so the 12 people who were in that class have all gone on to do amazing things in the world. They sort of run newspapers or, you know, they're writing books. So it's a really nice cohort to be with. Um, And I went and got my first job at Triple J, which, again, was just a great time to, you know, be young and have this job where you basically get to think about who do you want to talk to in the world and pick up the phone and get to talk to them. Uh, And uh, yeah, and I think by that time my childhood was fully over and I was ready to uh, take on the world, I guess.
0: Yeah, so you had a pretty metropolitan upbringing, no Mm -hmm. connection to agriculture or food in any way prior to. You were really.
2: No, my family, you know, my mum's side is based in Tamworth. And so, you know, my cousin runs a little bit of cattle, but certainly not. Yeah, I've never milked a cow or anything (laughs) like that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Did you did you enjoy school? Yeah, I did. I was,
2: you know, the nerd at the front, always putting up my hand. I remember once, you know, it still makes me shiver where the teacher asked me to look after the class because she had to step out. Like, what a total nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I, yeah, I like school. I went to the one school from when I was five until I was 17. So that place, yeah, it was a big part of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. What was, when, well, I mean, we'll get into the, I guess, maybe the career journey more so in a second, but I wonder um, before we get there, what was, when was a moment for you when you maybe realised or that you saw an opportunity that you wanted to jump at in agriculture? You
1: know,
2: I guess that I hadn't really... You know, I came to it sort of in a, in a backwards way or, you know, a side door. The opportunity really was presented to me to. Uh, go and help um, people who were in Sudan, you know, working. For, I didn't even know what the Food and Agriculture Organisation was, but I knew that they needed a comms person and I was offered this fantastic opportunity to which I'm still eternally grateful. And uh, it was only when I got there that I realised that agriculture, you know, supporting livelihoods, agricultural livelihoods was um, such a, a fundamental part of what the Food and Agriculture Organisation does. And so, yeah, so that's that's how I kind of landed Mm-hmm. Um, landed in this role yeah.
0: Had you been had you been looking for like work overseas at the time or how did it how did the opportunity land for you? Sure
2: so I'd been working at the ABC as a news journalist and then uh, got an opportunity to work in commercial television behind the scenes producing And I was working for a breakfast TV show, one of the high rating ones. And my job was to start work at midnight to put together the news bulletins for the 6 a.m., 7 a.m. show. And I, yeah, that's just, it's a terrible way to live. There's a reason that sleep deprivation is torture. So I wasn't really looking, but uh, a friend said, hey, maybe going to sort of a war-torn African country might be better than doing what you're doing. And
0: <laughs> That's true. Maybe pretty similar, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow, that sounds so incredible. I mean, tell us about in detail a bit more about that opportunity in Sudan and, and what about it just really made you go, okay, I'm quitting and I'm packing up my stuff and I'm going overseas.
2: Sure. So the job was to do communications for um, an emergency, the emergency program that FAO was doing in Sudan. And in particular, that work was focused on Darfur, which I'd heard about, you know, in, in, um, during the Darfur conflict. But I certainly, you know, wouldn't wasn't totally across all the ins and outs of, of that conflict. Um, So it was about, you know, packing up my bags and going to Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, for three months. And I figured I could do three months. That's fine. You know, I need a break. Maybe I might even come back to this, um, you know, Australian job. I gave my dog to my mum to look after and got on a plane. And I hadn't really, you know, I look back now, I hadn't really realised at the time that that was the beginning of, you know, my UN career of living overseas, you know, it's been 10 years now. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, at the time it was a very easy thing to do because it just didn't seem like such a giant leap, yeah. But I remember, sorry to interrupt.
0: No, go. I was Um, just going to ask you how old you were then. Oh,
2: at the time?
0: um, Well, I'm 45,
2: turning 45. So, yeah, early 30s, mid-30s, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I still felt quite young. I remember um, I was going to say I remember the first night that I was in Sudan I got uh, I arrived on a Friday being you know the weekend and I just had no idea about the culture. I wasn't sure if Sharia law was I knew it had been practiced, but I wasn't sure exactly the extent um, that it was now. I wasn't sure if I was allowed to walk around alone. Did I? How much did I need to cover? I had bought, you know, a full black, um, you know, coverall sort of dress with a shawl just in case, you know, and so that was the beginning of my experience and then um, I pretty much spent two days in this hotel room just looking out the window going, oh, my God, where am I? And then, you know, by the end I stayed there for two years and by the end, yeah, I realised that... Um, yeah, that it's very much um, multifaceted, multi-layered society. And yeah, it was yeah, an interesting cultural experience.
0: Wow. And I'm I'm sure such a departure in all facets from what you had been living for the, you know, for your career mm-hmm. up until then or for your life, really. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. It was an incredible experience, and you know, Sudan is—I think it makes the news and people know about you know Darfur, but it's such a, a fascinating place. You know, beyond you know Darfur is the thin strip of Sudan next to the border with Chad, but you know, there's so much different culture in different parts when you move around Sudan. Different uh, tribal groups, different languages people who are uh, over near uh, the Red Sea, so on the sort of more Arab side of um, Africa, they had a lot of influence from Indian traders centuries ago, and so women there have the similar sort of colourful saris and colourful jewellery, lots of silver jewellery and nose rings. And you know it's just a totally different um, experience. To, for example, on the north of the country, right up near the border with Egypt, I had to go there on a mission because there was a swarm of desert locusts, and so I went out with our technical team to see if we could spot them. And I was there to take photos and, and document the trip. And we, our car broke down on the border between, um, on the border crossing between Sudan and Egypt, and it is just like a moonscape. It's nothing there, completely flat, you know, watching the sunset just in this incredible, you know, completely um, alien to me environment, it's just stunning. And also, up, um, you know, in the north, not quite so far north, but they also have uh, ancient pyramids there because, you know, the, the um, obviously the border is only a new construct. And so, um, you know, thousands of years ago, it was one uh, big community and so the, Um, pyramids that are in Sudan people argue might be older than the pyramids that are in Egypt they're much smaller but uh, yeah just incredible to be there and you know to see this stuff that I would never get the opportunity to see if I didn't have this work opportunity.
0: Wow well I think it's time for you to I guess tell us some more about your job what it just what does the day in the life look like for you I'm sure it's different every day but maybe you could summarize for us.
2: Sure. So I, I basically run communications for our regional office. So we have um, a UN Assistant Director General. So he is one of the sort of key leadership for um, for our organisation. So I do comms there, and I also coordinate all of the comms from the countries. So there's more than 40 countries in Africa that are members of FAO. So uh, a lot of, you know, working with teams on videos and social and press releases, you know, basic day-to-day of a communications officer, For example, we just did a big launch last week of a a new uh, publication that we did jointly with the African Union that is trying to boost trade between African countries in agricultural commodities because... um, intra-African trade in agricultural commodities is around 2%, whereas comparatively countries, say, in Europe, it's up around 60% of the trade that they do with each other. So if we could increase the um, trade between these countries, obviously there would be a whole lot of flow-on effects, boosting um, people's livelihoods. It's about also taking away tariffs. Countries have agreed to lift tariffs, so that could have a flow-on effect to make you know, nutritious um, foods, more affordable for people. So organising that, you know, coordinating with the African Union, yeah, putting on an event, doing all the, the um, you know, publicity around that, that's that's a regular sort of activity. But one thing that's a little different is that because of the pandemic and um Yeah, basically because of the pandemic. I'm in Italy and Rome at the moment, so having to do everything remote, which in some ways, um, you know, is good because uh, everybody is on Zoom and so it feels totally normal to have a a big team meeting on Zoom. But it also means that the smaller team that I work with in the office, I've never been in the same room with them, but, you know, there's uh, five of us and we're, uh, you know, we were using the analogy the other day that we're, um you know like running a marathon together and it's great to have everybody you know running together like a a little you know Mm. team but so strange that I I have only ever seen it everybody's little zoom rectangles so Mm. hopefully soon I'll be able to travel and, and be with the team
0: so without COVID you would otherwise be stationed in Africa
2: Yeah, that's right. So our regional office is in Accra, the capital of Ghana. So usually I should be there. And then there's a bit of travel, you know, there's a lot of meetings with the UN So the job should also include a bit of travel to various regional hubs, Nairobi and Addis, Dakar, for example.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, Tell us about, you know, for someone who's unfamiliar, what is the role of the FAO overarching?
2: Yeah, sure. So, The Food and Agriculture Organisation is one of the oldest UN organisations, so it started in the wake of World War II when a lot of agricultural uh, production was totally disrupted and it was actually an Australian person was involved in the early conversations about, you know, lobbying for um, FAO to be created. And um, since then, it's really about working with countries uh, to boost their agricultural production in ways that are sustainable with the end goal of ending food security. But it's much more broad than that as well because obviously that work has a whole lot of different dimensions. So, for example, we do work on climate change now, biodiversity, aquaculture, the, the spectrum of the work that we do, gender, of course, is an important part of that. Uh, urbanization, encouraging um, take up of digital tools in rural communities. <clears throat> so it's much more broad than just uh, increasing production. Um, We also have a sister agency called the World Food Programme that you may have heard of that won the Nobel Peace Prize, which is very exciting. And they were originally a small project of the Food and Agriculture Organisation back in the 60s. And their job was really about, you know, you probably um, would recognise the pictures when there's an emergency, WFP, Uh, you know, choppers in emergency food or, you know, they have a really strong logistics arm, they sort of did the emergency food aid. I mean, that is a bit of a simplified definition because their work is also um, much more complex and has evolved now. Yeah, so uh, I think that... That's the nub of what of what we do, and I guess to, if if it's um, confusing, you know, a lot of people haven't heard of FAO, but our sister agencies are, um, you know, UNICEF, WHO, so those bigger profile organisations. So we're in that family. Mm.
0: If someone's listening to this, just going, "Holy guacamole! This is so cool! I would love to work <laughs> in this space." <laughs> Have your job. Have- yeah, what, what advice do you give them? Because I'm, I'm listening to you and it kind of feels like it was just kind of a luck thing, but I doubt that, you know, you stayed in doing it for 10 years now. It's more than just luck. But what advice would you give to someone?
2: Sure. I think getting field experience is really important. It doesn't need to be for the UN, but for any sort of NGO, there are Australian programs to help get skilled Australians overseas. So I think just that willingness to go and try, go and see what you can do um i think that that shows that you're you know understanding sort of complex contexts and that you're willing to you know to go to new places where you have no no connections um and so um the other thing that i think is useful is to have uh, a second language particularly with the un that's more and more important um also with the un Usually um, if you're, they have a lot of consultancies. So that's what I started on, a short, you know, that three-month consultancy. So that is a a good entry point. But eventually having a career in the UN, you need to have a master's degree. Mm -hmm. And so that is, you know, something that is worth sort of putting on your to-do list if you do want to end up in this realm. Um, And I guess if you're a communications you know, if you're interested particularly in communications, then having a, a journalist background is um, usually sort of recognised as somebody who can write well and who can pull together a story. So that always helps, even if it's just sort of doing a, an internship or, or a, you know, junior um, role in a newsroom or, a you know, a radio station, commu- or your, you know, regional radio station or whatever it might be, just to get some runs on the board, I think that could be really useful as well.
0: Mm. what's your most outstanding memory of working in agriculture for development
2: you know I think the experience that I had when I was with the world food program when we went into Nepal just after the 2015 earthquake those memories really you know stick with me um for example you know we arrived about 72 hours after the earthquake and so you know, um, cleanup was, hadn't really even started yet. They were still in the phase of trying to see if there are any survivors or to pull out bodies from destroyed buildings. And so going into the capital, uh, you know, experiencing that was quite um, intense. And then our job was, as the World Food Programme, was to get, food emergency food to communities who had lost everything who's um, not only had their homes collapsed but they'd also lost their food stores their harvest access to water um paths connecting them to the next village and so we would be doing helicopter missions up into these really high communities and so my job was to collect um, the stories uh to share with the world and also to get journalists into some of these communities to them to also amplify the work that we were doing mm. and so one day I remember us choppering um, up into the mountains and I could out the window I could see just these tiny dots and I realized that there was a community who had lost everything who'd slept out in the rough and they were they could see the chopper and they were waving us down to you know to deliver them food and so We went down, we had a helicopter full of rice and um, the ground was wet so we couldn't, this huge helicopter couldn't stay on the ground for very long otherwise it would get bogged. So we all had to, and it was all hands on deck, everybody was, you know, having to pull these bags out. We had minutes on the ground. You can imagine the chopper making that Mm. chopper noise. There was, you know, lots of people yelling, go, 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 dumping all of this um, food and then jumping back in the chopper and, you know, flying away and it was pretty i often think about you know the the community and you know we've had the um privilege to be able to go back to a lot of those communities over time and see the rebuild that has happened and and that production has resumed so yeah so those sorts of days at the office make you feel pretty you know it feels good to do that work
0: Mm. yeah your sense of purpose in your role must feel very strong Yeah, I I mean,
2: I don't think it's any surprise to say that the UN is full of bureaucracy. Like I said, there are a lot of meetings, there's a lot of clearances. In communications, you know, as a journalist, I'm used to stuff happening really fast and the UN things don't happen that fast. So when you have frustrating days like that, yeah, yeah, it's important to take a step back and see the bigger picture. Yeah, and we're, of course... um, you know, hoping to contribute to countries uh, achieving the sustainable development goals, which, of course, has a deadline of 2030. So that adds a bit of urgency, you know, comparative urgency to the job as well. And when you do see success stories, which is a big part of my work in collecting um, those stories, even if they're on a, a micro scale, but when, mm-hmm. for example, we've been, um, we have a project in Mali that works with, communities to who grow cotton and it's common for children to work with their families in the cotton fields but we've been working with communities to diversify the production of those families so getting them into things like raising chickens for the eggs selling eggs um, vegetable production and that sort of cash income has helped and those kids be able to, the families be able to afford to send those kids to school. So it's not a huge, on a global scale, it's not huge, but being able to tell the story of, of a group of kids who can go to school, that, that gives you a sense of purpose. Mm. Mm.
0: And, you know, I think, especially coming from Australia, it's really... I think we struggle to look at those little micro-achievements and just see the gravity of those things because we, we, we live in a food-secure society uh, with most of us, you know, a quite secure income as well. And so I, I think your role must just, I think when you get to experience those sorts of things all the time, you must just look at all those little steps as, as tiny puzzle pieces to a much bigger, more exciting story of, of that de- those development goals.
2: Yeah, true. But let's not forget that Australia also has its own food security, food insecurity, Mm. pockets of that in communities. You know, I spent um, part of my career in the Northern Territory and, you know, sometimes we forget that in our own backyard there are also people dealing with these sorts of problems. Um, Yeah, so Mm. step by step, I think, you know, as long as everybody, everywhere in every country, you know, not just um, just countries that have food insecurity as, you know, one of their top issues, but if everybody can see that, uh, you know, voting in politicians who support this kind of work, that's important for everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, part of our work too is about... um, food waste if you look at the amount of food that rich countries and and not so rich countries waste both you know uh, in the kitchens of um, plates but also post-harvest food that's lost you know particularly in poorer countries where they don't have good storage systems you know those those sorts of actions are a bit more tangible I think for people to be able to apply in their homes and so yeah really pushing on that that advocacy that um global food security and sustainable food systems does affect everybody.
1: Mm.
0: With all of that in mind, I guess I'm I'm keen to know from you what excites you about the future of of f- this sort of area of work, I suppose? It's because it's huge. I mean it, it the organization itself is obviously so future focused. And what one part of of it, I guess, co- speaks to you the most in terms of lighting you up?
2: Well, I guess, as I said before, that our our mandate is really quite, uh, could be seen as quite fractured, that there's so many different areas that we're working in. But it's exciting that conversations more and more are looking at a whole food system and the transformations that are needed. And so that really means... Mm -hmm. Uh, supporting farmers, small-scale farmers, as well as, you know, bigger producers. And then if you think about the whole value chains, the production that's happening, I mentioned before about intra-African trade, a whole lot of pieces um, are in this food system. And so when you think of it of it as a, a connected piece and then looking at... Um, what transformations are needed along those pieces. I think that's a really exciting conversation that's happening because, of course, the UN Food Systems Summit that's happening this year, my organisation is hosting a pre-summit event. There's been dialogues in Australia, as you mentioned, and in all countries. And so that I feel like everybody's getting on the same page and hopefully there'll be some important commitments around that. Um, you know, this week we've also seen uh, important dialogue on uh, climate change and reducing emissions. That's also an, an important piece. Mm. So I feel like there are lots of um, the right people coming around the um, table, and so that that I think means that there's more momentum, more and more.
0: Mm, yeah, beautiful. The last question we always ask is if someone has resonated with your story or wants to know more about you or more about the kind of work that your organisation is doing, where should they go?
2: Sure. So they could go to the organisation's website, which is just FAO.org. Um, they could also go to fao dot org slash Africa particularly to have a look at the work that we're doing in Africa I'm on Twitter just as Zoe underscore Jones um people could reach out to me professionally on LinkedIn as well I'm happy to um, receive any messages there yeah I think they're the best ways
0: yeah and do you think this you know this global citizen in you will ever come home
2: I'd love to come home. I'm so homesick. I just <laughs> wish this pandemic would go away. I've got an 18 month old baby who needs to meet oh. lots of his family. So yeah, we're busting to come home. I also, you know, um, yeah, I'm looking at how can these skills that I've had over the last 10 years, how can they be applied to Australia? You know, mm. because that's uh, you know a personal um, you know priority of mine, but also. Uh, yeah there aren't many australian-based jobs uh, looking at africa obviously there's a lot um focusing on um, asia and the pacific so yeah.
0: yeah beautiful zoe thank you so much for your time today i know you're so busy and so we really really appreciate you giving up my this half hour Thank you for listening to this episode of the Crawford Fund podcast series by Generation Ag. If you enjoyed this episode, sit tight for the next one to arrive in about a month's time. Visit crawfordfund.org to find out more about the Crawford Fund or head on over to social media and find them on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. See you next time.